we're learning instead, no, there was a, there was a lot going on there, uh, just like there's a lot of challenges in the 21st century church. And, uh, and so it's just been interesting to look at what are the teachings, what's the theology, what are we being taught to do uh, throughout this series. And today's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I chose to name the message, To Eat or Not to Eat. And so when I decided on that message, I sent it to Tammy, our office administrator, and she read it, and she looked at me, and she says, Keith, don't ask yourself this question. Just eat, please. You need to gain some weight. And uh, I told her, Tammy, I'm trying. Trust me, I'm trying. But that's not exactly the emphasis that I wanted to make in the message of this title. My wife and I were out of town last weekend, and when we returned, we looked inside our refrigerator, and we considered what was still safe to eat. Uh, one of us likes to look at the expiration dates, uh, the, as if this is some sort of foolproof system for figuring out when food goes bad. The other one in our marriage just assumes that everything is fine unless it tastes funny or it smells bad. And this leads to some conflict from time to time, especially when I have my heart set on eating a leftover that then hits that make-believe time expiration date in her mind. I'll let you figure out who's who in, in our marriage. Uh, just this past Monday, so this is after, after the weekend, just this past mon- Monday, my son during lunchtime told me that his milk tasted funny. And I'm like, come on, boy. What? Just drink your milk. And then I smelled it, and it was like, okay, let me get you some fresh milk there. Um, and, and so we ask ourselves these questions in everyday life, you know, to drink or not to drink, to eat or not to drink. Um, these are questions, there's answers to these questions that don't really have terrible consequences to them, at least in my opinion, but we run up against them here and there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul responds to a food question as well. But it's a question that's very different than what we're used to. The question that comes from the church of Corinth is this. Can a Christian eat meat that was offered to idols? Is it allowable or is it sinful for a follower of Christ to eat meat that was previously offered as a sacrifice to some sort of God? Now, I enjoy a great question. I love having my mind be challenged with a theoretical situation or a real-life situation. And so questions that have to do with theology or history or philosophy or ethics, they're fun. I enjoy them. It's a good conversation starter. The question that's asked here in 1 Corinthians 8 is a question that I've never thought about. I've never wondered about the appropriateness of eating food that's been offered to an idol. I've never been invited to go to a temple and have a meal and kind of share in some sort of idol worship through a sanctified or consecrated food. And I've never thought about how these things would impact my life because I've never encountered any of them. But before we discount this chapter in the Bible, let's, let's look at the story behind this because there are some principles that come from this text. You and I know what it's like to go grocery shopping. We know what it's like to go to Superstore and save on foods and, and Costco. And the people of Corinth, they had their food markets as well. And in those markets, they had the option of buying meat. There was meat for sale there. Now, sometimes this was meat that apparently had been already offered to a god. They would have uh, an animal brought, or animals would be brought to the priests. Uh, There would be some sort of ritual done. There would be a sacrifice there. Some of the parts of the meat would be burned up as an offering. Some, the 
the priest himself would retain, and the rest of the meat would then be given back to the family if that was the family who was bringing uh, the meat there. And then sometimes the meat would then be taken to the markets, and you had the option of buying this meal. Now, I don't know if there was some sort of, of label then on this meat, and other meat didn't have the label, like may contain nuts, may contain gluten, may have been offered as a sacrifice to a god. I guess it's possible. But meat was not something that was a regular part of the Corinthian diet. It, it didn't happen a lot that they were eating meat, especially amongst those people who did not have a lot of money. And while meat could have been bought at a market and taken home and consumed, it was usually included as the primary course during festivals and ceremonies. So sort of like these, these civic, public holidays and celebrations, a lot of times they would happen at, at pagan temples, and people would come and they would feast and they would eat this meat that had been offered to an idol as a part of sacrifice. And typically these were people that had a little bit more money and a little bit of a higher social status. And they were social gatherings. They had an element of, of a kind of patriotic celebra- celebration and a bit of pagan worship as well. So the topic of eating meat appears several times in the New Testament. Here in 1 Corinthians, as you'll see in your Bible, it's a pretty major topic in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And depending on what part of this section you read, it can even sound like Paul contradicts himself about what he says about eating meat or not eating meat. But what seems to be unique in chapter 8 is where the meat is being served. And that's at the place of pagan temples, which serves as the worship place for idols. So eating idol meat in a temple might have felt religious for some. For other people, maybe it was just a traditional thing that you did in the city. Might be the same way that some people experience going to church on Easter or on Christmas. For some, it's just traditional. I'm just here with family. I'm here once or twice a year. For other, oh no, this is much more significant. This is my way of life. This is my calling and my following. It certainly depends on your history and your attitude about it. And this seems to be what is puzzling the church at Corinth here. And there's people that have dividing opinions on it. Gordon Fee, who writes an excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians, he explains that for the most part, the Gentiles who had become believers in Corinth have probably attended such meals at the pagan temples all their lives. This was the basic restaurant in antiquity. And every kind of occasion was celebrated in this fashion. And so the reason that Paul is responding to this issue in his letter is because there are some in the church who weren't clear on what action they should take and what they should do about their fact that their opinion, their conviction differed from others in their church. Author Simon Kistemaker states, the conscience of some believers was clear while that of others was burdened. The one party could say to the other party, do not be overrighteous. And the second party could retort, do not be overwicked. And so as foreign as this topic may be to you and I, it was a hot topic during that time in the first century. And so Paul gives his response, and as we've seen throughout this series, his response can sometimes be a little bit long-winded, and it can sometimes go to a little bit of a rabbit trail, and it has a a number of different ways that he tries to communicate with the church at Corinth. And here in chapter 8, He quotes them several times. He's received letters from the people at Corinth as well. And so he's either referring to kind of a common slogan in their day, just like you and I have a number of slogans that we hear in our world and we're used to. Uh, Sometimes it seems like he's responding to that idea. At other times, it may just be something that comes directly from his letter. But he starts with what they say. And then he kind of 
draws conclusions to what they say, and then he points them back to the gospel as if to say, hey, do your opinions really match up with this idea of following after Jesus? So we're going to begin by reading the first, verse, first six verses of chapter 8 in the letter to the first, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for, whom all, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So depending on what version of the Bible that you're looking at, uh, some of what Paul is saying is in quotation marks because there's the idea that he is quoting what the, the people in Corinth are saying. And within these first four verses, we see a number of times that he refers back to them. So in verse 1, there's this idea of we all possess knowledge. And in verse 4, there's, there's two quotes there. An idol is nothing at all in the world, and then there is no God but one. So Paul seems to affirm their first statement to a, to a degree. If we go to that next slide there, uh, we'll see those quotes that, that are up there from the, the knowledgeable in this group. So he seems to, to agree with this first statement. We all possess knowledge, but he directs it just slightly. Yes, they, they're knowledgeable. They have an understanding of what's going on. And yes, knowledge is a good thing. But within this context, Paul seems to think that their knowledge seems to be that, that, that their belief and their understanding that there is one God that there is one God, and because of this, idols, any other God or Lord that's out there, are completely worthless. They don't have any power. They don't have any value. And so he's agreeing with this to an extent. But his immediate reply is to remind them that their knowledge puffs up. Their knowledge has the potential to stir up pride and to activate this, this sense of being superior and knowing exactly how to act. It has the potential to be self-serving instead of outward-focused. Love, on the other hand, which is what he points them to instead, love builds up. There's no drawback to love. It's the ultimate expression of God's character. And later on in this letter, in chapter 13, uh, we have that beautiful poem where he uh, recites the whole, the whole uh, understanding of what love is and how it functions within community. And so in a not-so-subtle reminder, Paul reminds this church about the priority of love over knowledge. And this is probably one of the biggest themes in his letter to the church of Corinth. Look now at verses 2 and 3. He says, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. You see what Paul does here? He just kind of changes his words just a little bit. And he says, If you think you are knowledgeable but you don't recognize that love is the ultimate trump card, you actually don't know anything at all. You're actually not very knowledgeable at all. He says you do not yet know as you ought to know. And in relationship to God, it's not your knowledge of God's that rescues you. It's God's knowledge of you that saves you. It's kind of as if Paul says, hey, don't get too arrogant and cocky here. You need to understand everything flows out of God's actions. So it's good that you know that God exists and there's no other gods out there, 
But let's just remember your ultimate response now is love. And so then Paul begins to address the topic of eating meat to sacrifice idols. And he quotes their thoughts on idols and of God, which launches them into this short creed about the nature of God and the nature of Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. And when I read this, I think, how did Paul get here? We're just talking about idol meat, and now he's going into this kind of creed for the Christian church. And it does feel a little bit like a rabbit trail, but it does serve as a reminder about the relationship between God and humanity with respect to this question of eating meat. Because if God is creator, and if we are then the created and we live for him, then our, our instruction, the natural default response, is to live for him and not to live for ourselves. What God wants is more important than what we want. And this is kind of a subtle way that Paul introduces his response to the question about whether or not they should be eating meat. And verse 7 is the turning point. Leading up to this, Paul's pretty much been in agreement with the things that they have said to him. And at this point, he's saying, yes, an idol is nothing. You're correct on that. Yes, there's only one God in this world. Absolutely, I agree with you. But, and this is the transition word that, that Paul uses, he says, however, not everyone knows this. Not everyone has this knowledge that you appear to have about there being one God and about idols being worthless. You may know there might be some people who know this in their head. Maybe they have mental knowledge of these things. But there's still much in their past that connects eating consecrated meat and a place designated for worshiping idols with their past, with idol worship. And so this activity still feels wrong to them. In the words of Gordon Fee, uh, by saying this, Paul means that even though all may believe at the theoretical level that an idol is no God, not all share this knowledge at this experiential, emotional level. The fact is that their former way of life is woven into their consciousness and emotions in such a way that the old associations cannot be thus lightly disregarded. In other words, eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol still felt like idol worship to some of these people. It felt like a betrayal to their Christian faith. And so therefore, as Paul states at the end of verse 7, their conscience is defiled. If they choose to go ahead and eat the meat then they've dishonored their commitment to Christ. This is Paul's way of explaining to those who are wise, those who are knowledgeable, that they need to consider the opinions and the feelings of those who differ from them. Not all of you will think the same way, so instead of talking about no, what you think is true, instead of pushing your thoughts and encouraging other people to think the same way as you, how about you consider how they're feeling? The two statements that then appear in verse 8 probably came from the Corinthian letter as well. And it goes back to the point that food does not have any religious significance. Food doesn't bring us closer to or further away from God, and we are no better or no worse if we do or do not eat certain types of food. And this seems to be a little bit of a setup to what Paul's surprising words are in verse 9 to 13. And I'll read the rest of the chapter now. He says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened? Meaning, won't that person be built up or even encouraged to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died for is destroyed by your knowledge. 
When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. It's a bit of a complicated section of Scripture, but uh, let me do my best, hopefully, to summarize Paul's argument. This is what he seems to be saying to this, to this church. He says, hey, some of you go out to eat at the temple. Maybe it's because of a celebration. Maybe it's a long weekend. Maybe it's an invitation from someone that you work with. Maybe you're just tired of cooking and the kids are out of control and you want a night out. So you go out to what Gordon Fee calls kind of the restaurant, the restaurant of antiquity. You go out to the temple and you, and you order what I would order, the meat lover's special. That's Keith, Keith talking, not uh, Paul talking. Now, you know in your head that there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. You know in your heart that there's nothing wrong. And you feel a healthy and distant separation from your former way of life. Remember, uh, culturally speaking here, these, these were a group of people that they worshipped idols. Stones, wood, metals, they bowed down and worshipped idols. They thought that that held value and significance for their life. And so there's some people that that's completely detached from. It's no longer a temptation. The temple gods don't mean anything to them, and they just happen to be in a position in their life where they get the chance to go to the temple again and enjoy a meal. They go, they eat, they socialize, and some people may even feel that this is their right to do that. It's not just a privilege and an opportunity. Hey, it's something they like. It's something they want to do. It's their right. But this is Paul's message to these people. Some of your fellow brothers and sisters in the church, in the faith, they don't experience this in the same way. And they hear that you go to the temple, and they hear your rationale for going there, and they might even look up to you as a mature believer. And this causes them to think that they ought to do the very same thing that you're doing. In fact, some of you seem to even be trying to convince them, as if to say, you know what, in order to strengthen yourself, in order to help you mature in your own conscience, why don't you follow in my footsteps and do the same thing to almost build a type of immunity towards this? But here's the difference, Paul says. They aren't that far removed from their former life. To them, it's not just eating meat and not just socializing. To them, it's what they used to do. It feels like they're worshiping idols. It feels like they're turning away from Jesus. And your actions are not only setting them up to sin, you're getting them dangerously close to returning to their former life of idolatry. Paul then says that when they do this, they set up their brothers and their sisters to sin. And they sin themselves. They sin against their brothers and sisters, and they sin against God. And so Paul tells them what he's personally chosen to do under these circumstances. He says, I will never eat meat again. I will not go to the temple to participate in a meal because it's not worth it. I don't want a brother or a sister in the faith to fall away simply so I can eat. Now, what does all of this about idol worship and temples and consecrated meat, what does it mean for us? Because, I mean, this is, I don't know, are you tracking with this? Like, this is, this is a little different, right? The most common way that this chapter seems to be applied to our lives is by focusing on verse 9 and turning Paul's teaching here into an idea called the stumbling block principle. I'm guessing many of you have... Uh, heard of this idea. This is the way that I've always understood this passage and that it's been taught to me. 
The basic idea of the stumbling block principle is this. Christians should not do anything that would cause another believer to stumble and to fall into sin. This idea is connected to a few other passages in the New Testament, and it's connected in part to what Jesus says in the Gospels about not causing little children to sin. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Fairly strong words from from Jesus, right? Now, there are many things that people can do that cause other people to sin. But these actions typically are sinful in nature. And so those ones really aren't that difficult to figure out whether or not we should uh, participate in those type of actions. They're clear violations against God and humanity. The stumbling block principle applies best to actions or behaviors that are not clearly wrong for everyone. These are the ideas of sort of the gray area of the gray areas of our life. They're gray because the Bible doesn't give us clear guidance on this issue, and when the issue is opened up, they seem to be applied specifically differently to different individuals as they consider their own circumstance. Plus, then you have the perception of other people and how they deal with that gray issue. And so because of this, people will point to this text to help them consider gray areas in life, such as drinking alcohol. How much should one consume? Should one do that in front of other people or not? What does that look like for their life? Dressing modestly is another great example of this. Does it cause someone else to fall into sin? What's the lever, the, the balance between being appropriate and being comfortable? Family planning methods, a lot of different debate about what is, what is appropriate and what is not. Entertainment options. I mean, look at our world now. I remember hearing this as a child, and it only related to television and movies. Now, I mean, we have entertainment, advertising everywhere. What does it look like in that gray area of life? If we wanted to, ironically in this passage, we could probably throw food on this list in the gray area of our life. Because it can vary quite a bit from person to person about what is healthy and God-honoring and what is not. It can range from healthy eating, eating, excuse me, healthy eating habits to flat-out eating disorders. And we influence one another in that area as well. The challenge with the stumbling block principle is that some people take this idea all the way to the extreme. And when they take it all the way to the extreme, it says the entire Christian community must behave in ways that will not offend others in the community that have more stricter standards. Richard Hayes says in his commentary, the effect of such reasoning is to hold the entire community hostage to the standards of the most narrow-minded and legalistic members of the church. And clearly, this is not what Paul intended. And it's not Paul's intention, because the stumbling block principle is really not a suitable application for this text. As Gordon Fee points out in his commentary, the stumbling block principle is most closely connected to what Paul says later on. We have those texts up there as well. Later on in, in chapter 10, And also in Romans chapter 14, there's an idea of not letting others fall into sin and being aware of how your influence and your impact has on the broader community. But the idea in those passages is not to curb our behavior to appease the individual who has the most sensitive conscience. That's not the idea. The idea is to recognize that there will be differences of opinion in the gray areas of our life and to work together to live in mutual harmony and goodwill. 
not in a way that would have one group of people demanding and dictating that other people live up to their own standards, and not in a way of saying, it's my right to feel offended by this, but understanding, nope, we're going to have differences of opinion. Let's talk about this and respect the diversity. 1 Corinthians 8 is connected to the stumbling block principle in part, but there's a pretty significant difference. The primary issue that Paul talks about is not offending someone in the church. The primary issue is weaker brothers and weaker sisters being destroyed. This is the language that Paul uses in verse 9. Those who are weaker, those who are less mature, those who are more vulnerable are being destroyed as they're drawn back into idol worship. And the reason they're going back to their former way of life is because they are replicating the actions of others in the community. Those who think of themselves as being more knowledgeable and stronger. Author Craig Blomberg suggests it's quite likely that what the strong felt would build up the weak was actually daring them to do something destructive. So as we consider that part of this passage, it's actually quite difficult to think of a comparable issue that fits our situation. Here in Langley, here in 2015, what does an application of this text look like? Gordon Fee goes as far as to say that Western Christianity for over a millennium has had nothing in its culture comparable to this issue. I think that's the first time I've ever studied to preach and I've had a, a commentator say, you know what, there's really no application of this text. <laughs> Made my job a little bit easier, I suppose. Now, nothing may come to his mind over the last thousand years that's comparable, but maybe something comes to your mind. Maybe something comes to our mind. Do we see any sort of comparison where those in our community might be purposefully leading others into a way that is destructive for them? I've thought about uh, believers, not necessarily in our church community, but in the lower mainland who have left their previous mode of faith. Perhaps Islam, maybe an, an Eastern world religion of some kind. In many cases, their prior faith is embedded with family traditions and holidays and respect and religious symbolism. And it can be a real struggle for them to figure out what, what's the balance between leaving that former way of life and being respectful and honoring the traditions that I grew up with. And then it can be even more challenging to think about what does that look like for me and then what does that look like for others in my situation and making sure that I don't cause them to stumble and return to that former way of life. It's a gray area that's interpreted very differently. Can you think of an example where the strong or the mature might jeopardize the faith of others by leading them to imitate risky behaviors? And by risky behaviors, I mean situations where a person runs the risk of returning to a life of idolatry, worshiping a false god, like the god of wealth, or the god of power, or the god of personal fulfillment. There may be valid examples of this that we can point to, and quite realistically, there may not be any examples at this point that we can look at in our lives. But regardless of a direct application, this text does give us a number of principles to consider, even if we can't relate them to a clear application. So I want to give credit to, to Craig Blomberg, who identifies these in his commentary. He lists three that come from our passage this morning. Number one, what is safe for one Christian may not be for another. What's safe for you may not be safe for someone else. 
we see the gray areas of life in different shades of black and white. We, what might be an area of freedom for one is an area of temptation for another and an area of idolatry for someone else. So we need to respect the diversity that exists in our church family. And we need to be sensitive about potentially leading others off course. I think one of the best ways that we can do this is being wise in how we talk about the gray areas of life and being willing to engage in healthy, meaningful conversation, considering once again the perspective and feelings of others and also doing this in love. And we need to be open to the fact that we may need to rethink how we choose to live. Uh, Principle number two, true discernment requires much more than just knowledge. The point that Paul makes to the so-called strong is that their knowledge of the situation isn't enough. They need to account for many more factors than they have. It's not just about their theology or what's been revealed to them or what they can prove uh, through a, a logical argument. And we need to consider this as well. Knowledge feeds pride. And our knowledge can often put us in the position of not wanting to listen to other people's perspectives. And the whole purpose of entering a time period of discernment is to hear God's perspective, not to stay rooted in our prior understanding. Love is the most important factor in the discernment process. And lastly, believers have no right to demand certain freedoms if they in turn prove to be detrimental to those around them. We need to elevate our love for those in the church above the rights or privileges that we may feel entitled to. And this is a very countercultural idea. We love our rights. We love our freedoms. Uh, We think about our true identity as, as citizens here in Canada. But remember, if you are a follower of Christ, your true identity is that as a citizen in God's kingdom. And in that kingdom, our model is Christ. And what did Christ do with his rights and his privileges? He emptied himself of them. He humbled himself to the position of a servant instead of clinging and grasping to his rightful spot as God incarnate. He gave it up because of his love for us. And as citizens of God's kingdom, our call is to love others. Love, 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 love. Christians, this is your call. Love your neighbor as yourself for God loves us all. And it's because of God's love that we're here, worshiping, joined here in community with one another. It's because of God's love that Jesus was sent to die on our behalf and to defeat the power of sin. It's because of God's love that we are a body of believers united through the blood of Jesus. We love one another and we serve each other's best interests because of God's love for us. And as a reminder of God's love to us this morning, we're going to celebrate communion. Jesus told his followers that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And this is what Christ did for us. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was charged. He was condemned. He was crucified and he was killed. But then he rose. He arose victoriously. His love cannot be defeated. The communion tables will be open on either side of the room, and we have some of the youth in the church who are going to be helping us in in having that served. And we're going to do communion a little bit differently this morning. Uh, We are doing it so that you would actually select a piece of, of bread that symbolizes the body of Christ, and you're going to dip it 
in the juice there representing his blood. And then you can take it back to your seat and you can eat it when you feel ready to do so on your own. We also have crackers and individual glasses of juice for those that may have a gluten allergy. So when we eat the bread and when we have the juice, we declare the death and resurrection of Jesus. We do this in celebration of his grace and we do this as an affirmation to love Jesus and to love others. Let's pray and then the team will lead us through song and remembrance. Lord God, I thank you for the reminder of your word that our faith is not individual, it is corporate. That how we process life, how we live does have an impact on those around us. And Lord, far be it from us to live in a way that would cause anyone in our community to stumble, either in a specific instance of sin or in the idea of having them return to their former life of idolatry. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes and if there is a need for us to confess ever being a stumbling block to someone else or ever leading someone astray, that you would bring that conviction and that we would have the courage and the heart to confess to you and to confess to the brother or sister that we may have offended. Lord, as we celebrate communion, we thank you for the way that you have brought reconciliation in our lives, reconciliation to you. And so as we celebrate your goodness, as we consider your love for us, Lord, uh, fill us anew, we pray. We pray that your grace would shower over for us and that we would be led to worship you and you alone. Amen.